0: Please open it to Genesis Chapter Three. Genesis Chapter Three, verses thirteen, verses sixteen through nineteen. Here's God's word. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. From out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father God, as we come to your truth, we uh, once again need your spirit to come and to give us understanding of it. Um, I do pray, Lord, that you would speak through me and to me, uh, that the spirit would do a mighty work in my heart as well. Uh, as I said, Lord, we are all are in constant need of our Savior, a constant need of Christ still today, just as much as we did the day we came to know him in having faith. And so I pray that uh, he will move uh, during this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We are the most dysfunctional family ever. Have you ever said that or at least thought those words in your head? We are the most dysfunctional family ever. If you have uh, thought that, then that I have some advice from you for, from a guy named of uh, uh, Jeff Foxworthy. I'm sure you all know who he is. He, he says, if you ever start feeling like you have the goofiest, the craziest, the most dysfunctional family in the world, all you have to do is go to the state fair. <laughs> because five minutes at the state fair, you'd be going, you know, we're all right. <laughs> we're warranty almost. We're okay. The reality is that that we all, it's often hard to see the reality that all families are at least a little bit dysfunctional. We we always think it's just our family. We always think it's just us. And so if it's you, then you should go to the state fair, then you know it's not you. It's all of us. Mary Carr says, a dysfunctional family is a family with more than one person in it. So if you got more than one person in your family, then guess what, you're dysfunctional. Why is that true? This is true because when you look at marriage through the lens of the fall, you see that marriage is hard, and even sometimes broken. Sin puts the DYS in functional for every family on the face of the earth. I don't care how good things look on the outside or from the outside, every family is dysfunctional in some regard because of sin. Each family still has to deal with sin. This means that your marriage will not always function properly as a covenant. It still is a covenant, but it ain't always going to function properly as a covenant because of sin. It means you and your spouse are not going to always function properly as one flesh because of sin. It means you and your spouse will not always function properly in your roles as head of house and helper, mother and father, because of sin. All of those things All those things that I talked about in in the first part of this sermon series is now going to be dysfunctional because of sin. We have to deal with it. And we learn of some of these dysfunctions here in Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. And these verses speak of of this Lord God bringing judgment, family, to Adam and Eve because of their rebellion. You see, the last two two Sundays, we, we saw the Lord graciously give Adam and Eve Opportunities to own their sin, to even confess it, but they did not. Instead, they, they played the shame and the blame game. And so this morning, God is no longer asking questions. He has given out judgment. first to the serpent, then to our first parents. These judgments reveal to us that the functions that are now the norm because of sin. And so he goes to our mother, Eve, and he deals with her first. He says to the woman, this shows that God, he judges individually and specifically. He is getting ready to hold Eve accountable for what she did. His judgment is going to affect two areas that that many women hold very dear. The first one is procreation, childbirth which is only unique to the woman, because only the woman can do that. Now the curse and the judgment is not on procreation itself. Remember, in Genesis 1, the Lord blessed Adam and Eve, didn't he? He, says, he blessed them say, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. So childbirth is not a, it's not a curse. It's not sin. What was going to be different now is that what she experienced in procreation was going to be different. Her experience in childbirth. It's going to be different. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Her experience is now, it's not going to be what it could have been before the fall. Tim Keller tells us that nothing works now as it should. Nothing works now as it should. Sin leads to the disintegration of every area of life. Spiritual, physical, social, cultural. All those things are now impacted by sin. Eve and every woman after her will experience uh, this dysfunction of pain in childbirth. It was going to serve as a reminder to her of the fall. And this pain is a grief a sorrow, a hardship, even a trial. She is going to experience nausea, morning sickness. Labor itself is going to be hard and painful. And for some women, this pain will be seen in miscarriages, stillbirths, barrenness. All this because of Sin. This is hard to hear, but the reality is that the fall has fallen on us all in many ways, and for some of us, and some of you, it has fallen on you in painful ways. And my heart goes out to you. Eve's painful experience is going to also be felt in another area that women hold dear, and that's in the area of family and her marriage. See, many women find their sense of purpose and identity and significance and security in being a mother and wife. They do. And what we're knowing now is that your experience in those things is going to be on the sin. It's going to be hard. And some of you know that by personal experience. See, the sin changed things forever. It did. After Adam and Eve, after God's eventually sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. Her and Adam had two sons, Cain and Abel. What did Eve later experience as a mother once they got out of the garden? What did she experience? What did she lose? She experienced loss of a child from one of her other childs. One son murdered another. So your experience as a mother it's not going to always bring perfect peace and fulfillment and a joy to your heart. and So it's, you're going to always have an ache for your kids. Even when they're grown, mothers still ache for their kids. Still feel that pain or sorrow when something bad happened to them. Because of sin, it is not going to be a perfect experience. It's going to be filled with some grief, some disappointments. And some hardships. I know that's hard to hear. It's hard for me to say it because I have two small kids too. But as we know, things don't work as they should now because of the fall. A wife's experience, a woman's experience as a wife is also going to be is impacted by this. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This term for desire only appears three times in all the Old Testament. This Hebrew word, three times in all the Old Testament, is only used three times. It used in the Song of Solomon in, in verse 7 and 10. It says, I am a beloved, and his desire is for me. This is a desire for a man, a man and a woman have for each other in the context of marriage, and it occurs in Genesis 4:7, where the Lord tells Cain, "Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, and you must master it." And there place is here in Genesis 3:16, where the Lord tells the woman, "Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you." I don't believe this desire is one of warm fuzzies feelings of great appreciation but I think it's something else and it's centered around roles in marriage. If you remember our sermon on the roles in marriage, I said that the roles in marriage were put in place doing the work of creation. Marriage roles did not come into existence in the 1950s. They didn't. They are not something that just came up all of a sudden. They were put in place in Genesis, before the fall. Adam and Eve, before the fall, they were equally created in the image of God. They were equal in worth, value, and dignity. And they knew that and embraced that and enjoyed that. They also knew that they were like opposites of each other, complementary of each other. They affirmed and and rejoiced in that too. They knew they had different roles, But because of sin, their experience in those roles now is going to be dysfunctional because of sin. The wife's role as a helper would be a dysfunctional role because her desire would be for her husband. For the wife, this is a desire for your husband, I think, would be seen in three ways. First, you're going to always be tempted to abandon your role and want your husband's role in marriage. You're going to feel it to 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 want to be head of house. The headship role. You're going to be tempted to want that. Secondly, I think this desire can be seen seen in you overly trying to please your husband, mothering him, pampering him, so you don't have to take responsibility. I think this role up this desire will also be seen in you worshiping your husband, making him your only your little idol that you bow down to and worship because. Keys, the more you're going to fulfill your needs that only Jesus can fulfill. I think those are the three ways that every wife is going to struggle when it comes to desiring her husband. You're going to struggle with it. And some of you know that. That's because the fall happened. The fall happened. And if you're not married, you will, when you get married, those will be your struggles. You say, Well, we're dating and we're engaged. I'm not feeling it now. You're not married yet. When you get married, you will. You will feel it. And he also says, the husband will rule over you. I'm going to get into that later, but that is not a good thing either. As well. Susan Hunt, in her book, True Woman, She tells a story of a woman, how a woman treated her husband. I want you to listen to this. This woman says, before marriage, I was attracted to my husband's strong personality. After marriage, that same personality overwhelmed me. I began believing the lie that Eve believed in the garden. I could not be fulfilled doing it God's way. I'm going to read that again. I began believing the lie that Eve believed in the garden. I could not be fulfilled doing it God's way. I believed the lies that I had to fight for my rights and that it was my responsibility to destroy my husband's ego. So I did everything I could to belittle him. I corrected him in public. I rarely expressed affirmation and appreciation for him. In trying to destroy his pride, I was destroying his manhood and elevating my own pride. I convinced myself that when he changed, I would be a great wife. I was less and less interested in him. There were no feelings of affection or love. I would rather have gone to an execution than to be intimate with my husband. I resented the fact that my husband was so needy, ignoring the truth that perfect Adam also had needs. That's what sin would do. That's what sin would do. He would do that. Dysfunctions. Ladies, that's what you're going to have to fight against. As wives. As mothers. Remember what about Adam? What did God have to say to him? Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Keep in mind that God is judging them individually and specifically here. He's getting ready to hold Adam also accountable for his sin. And when I I read these verses about Adam, I basically see it's a failure of leadership for Adam. He failed to lead because he listened to his wife's voice by eating the fruit, and he failed to be led because he disobeyed God's word. Mm-hmm. To lead and he failed to be led because he rebelled against God. And Adam's judgment affects one area that all men have a tendency to find their self-worth in, and that is our work. May every man has finds as I in his work, and what God is telling him is curses grab the ground because of you. Now, Troll you will eat of it all days of your life. These words do not mean work is cursed and bad, because work is good. Okay? Work was given before the fall. God made us to work. Because in Genesis 2 says, there was no man in the garden to work and keep it. So God put Adam in the garden to do that. So work is good. But what we experience in work is going to be different now. It's under the curse. It's not cursed, but it's under the curse of sin. You're going to experience sorrow and painful toil in our work all the days of our life. It's going to produce thorns and thistles for us. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Adam is going to have to work hard. It's going to be hard labor's work. It's not ever going to return to him all that he thinks is going to return for him now. So you'll spend long hours in your work and probably still won't get the results you so labored hard for. You will have your own personal thorns and thistles you have to deal with. Circumstances, bosses, co-workers, even the best job would not fully bring the enjoyment that you hope it would bring. Why? Because of sin. There will be frustrations. There will be lack of fulfillment. And as a husband, you're going to respond to these realities in one or two ways. First, you will hate work and you won't work, and you refuse to work, and then let be provider for your family. Secondly, you're going to worship work, and then let your family by working 80 hours a week, because you think your only role is to bring home money. You're going to abandon it? Or you're going to worship it. That's every man's struggle when it comes to work. You're going to have a dysfunctional experience. The husband is going to have a dysfunctional experience in his role in the marriage and family as well. The husband is given the role of headship. It's not, a, it's not because he's better. It's because that's the way God created things. The woman and his wife is given the role of helper. And these roles are Good. Good now they're under the curse of sin and because of that there's going to be discord in every marriage over these roles the husband experience in the role of headship is dysfunctional which means you will find it easy to either abandon your role or to abuse your role in the home every husband is going to come face to face with those temptations He's going to be tempted to abandon his role by being passive in the home, letting his wife take over the role of headship. Man's natural inclination towards passivity comes from our father Adam. Why? Because don't forget, while Eve was in dialogue with the serpent, Adam was right there with her the whole time, but he said nothing. Genesis 3.6 says, Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He just didn't walk up on the crime. He was just standing there, standing there the whole time. Larry Craft, one of my favorite authors, he says, Adam then was a silent a man, a passive man. Like many men in history, he was physically present but emotionally absent. He fades into the background of the story, rather standing front and center on the stage. His sin began in his, with his silence. A husband who lives in passivity freely and willingly lets his wife function in the role of headship. He's only headship by title, not by function. The favorite phrase of a husband who lives this way is, Well, my wife handles that stuff. She handles that stuff. I work, I bring home the money, but the household, she handles all that stuff. I'm not involved with that stuff. It's going to be comfortable to be passive and not to leave. It's going to be comfortable and easy to be emotionally disengaged with your wife and kids. It's going to be so easy to do it. I struggle with it. And I know why because of sin. A pastor friend of mine told me he went an extended period of time electing his wife for ministry. And it caused problems in his marriage. And he told me this. His wife told him that when, when when you when I get up to when you get up to preach, you think I'm leaving to help with the nursery, but I don't leaving because I don't want to hear what you have to say. You see, it's a lie to believe that you're fulfilling your role as a husband just because you bring home money. God created you to be more to your family than a paycheck. He created you to lead them spiritually as head of house in your headship role. That's the role that only the husband can fulfill. That's the way God has created things. And when a family is functioning that way, God's way, then you have a healthy family. Not perfect, but healthy. Doing it God's way. I know this stuff is hard to hear. I had to write it. I'm preaching to myself. Second, Adam is going to be tempted to abuse his role by ruling over his wife. Ruling over her. The question here is whether or not this is a good rule or a bad rule. The context of Genesis 3 in this section is judgment. And so I believe this Ruling over his wife here is not a good thing. It's not a good rule. I believe this is also under the curse of sin. Because for sin, a husband would be tempted to exercise dominion over his bride, forcing her to inappropriate subjection to him. The number one phrase of husbands who abuse their role is this. The Bible said the man is head of house. So you have to do whatever I say with that question. You don't think Christian men say this? I know some that do. They use that, they use that over their wives so they can make all decisions and do everything they want to do and keep their, his wife in her place. That happens in Christian homes. This a scene when a husband emotionally and physically abuses his wife. That happens in Christian homes. This a scene when a husband belittles and deme- demeans his wife. They see whenever a husband does things for self-centered purposes that, that is not for the health of his family. If he treats her like his domestic maid or housekeeper, that's not loving her. That's an abuse of your role. It's dysfunctional. As spouses, what are we going to do with all of these issues of marriage? We know what marriage was created to be, but we also know what we experience in marriage is not what it was created to be because of sin. What do you do with that? How do you reconcile those? What do you do with your self in marriage? How are you dealing with it, spouses? How are you, how are you dealing with the shame and blame game? Because we all play it. How are you dealing with it? How are you dealing with all these dysfunctions and roles? How do you make sense of it? It feels like you're at war. That's what it feels like. It feels like you, you, no matter what you do, you can't seem to get it right. In World War II, a photographer named Joe Rosenthal Rosenthal photographed a five United States Marines and a U.S. Navy uh, craftsman raising the flag of the United States at Jima. I'm sure most of you have seen the stamps with them raising that flag. And it's a famous uh, photograph that was taken in, in World War II. And when the soldiers raised that flag, it was the first time in a thousand years that an enemy flag was raised on Japanese soil. A thousand years. And when that photo arrived in America, most Americans saw it as a symbol for victory in the war. Having a healthy marriage is like going to war. But the question is, whose flag are you going to allow to be raised in your marriage? What flag is flying? Would it be the flag of your sin? Would it be the flag of self-centeredness? Would it be the flag of blame and shame and dysfunctions? What flag is standing in the center of your marriage today? I'm telling you, it needs to be the flag of the cross. That's the flag that has to be planted in every marriage. In between what marriage was created to be and what marriage actually is today because of sin is Jesus. He's in the middle of it. Because if he's not there, then your marriage ain't going to be what you want it to be. That's the flag that has to be in your marriage. Jesus. It has to be cemented in your marriage. Jesus has to be at the center, but is he? Is he the sinner? You see, when you look at marriage through the lenses of redemption, you see that marriage is now ministry. Ministry to one another. Because of what Christ did for you, you do it for your spouse. Because of what Christ did for you, you do that for your spouse. When you look at marriage through the lenses of redemption, that's where we're going next week. You see that marriage is now ministry. Ministry to one another. Because of what Christ did for you, you do it for your spouse. The way he ministered to you, the same way you minister your spouse. And that table is a reminder of what he has done for you. Look at it, spouses. Look at it. Look at what he did for you in spite of you. Look at what he did for you because you couldn't do it for yourself. Look at what he did for you when you spat in his face. Look at what he did for you when you were his enemy. Look at what he did for you before you even known him. That's what he did for you in spite of you. It's a reminder that he does not shame you. It's a reminder. That he does not blame you. It's a reminder that he takes away your dysfunctions. It's a reminder that he did for you what you cannot do for yourself. It's a reminder that he is the reason why you're right with God. He is the reminder that he's the reason why you're going to heaven. It's a reminder that he did it all for you. Now, if that doesn't change you, nothing will. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. If that can't make me love my wife, then nothing ever will. Nothing. Oprah can't. Dr. Phil can't. (laughs) Seminar can't. If the gospel cannot bring you to the place where you humble yourself before your spouse, nothing in all creation will. It can't. It cannot. That's the gospel. That's what this table is about. But do you believe it? Here. Not here, but here. This table, it's not my table, it's not the village church's table, it's Christ's table for his people. So if you're feeling convicted right now, then guess what? This is where you need to be. This is where you need to be. Because it's a reminder that he also loves to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. So if you're not the spouse you need to be, bring it to the cross. And he can help you be the spouse you need to be for your spouse. This table is for all baptized Christians, all those who have faith in Christ, all those who are willing to confess and repent of their sins and who are members of a congregation that proclaim the gospel. This table is for you. And if you don't know Christ, I can, I'm glad that you're here. And I would like to tell you how you can know him. So after the service, if you have questions about what it means to be a believer, please come see me, come see Lyle, Admin, or one of the officers, and we'll share the good news of Christ with you of what it means to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Adults, we ask that the kids with you, that they abstain from taking the elements until they have made a profession of faith and have been baptized and have been admitted to the Lord's table by the church that you attend. We leave that to your oversight. And my favorite part is to you, kids. I want you to observe what we do. Observe it. Pay attention to it because it's a reminder of what Christ did for each of you on the cross. It's all of our joy and hope one day that all of our little babies will one day take up this meal with us when they come and kind of save in faith in Christ. For my kids, Mass and Trace, that's my prayer. That day one day we'll be able to partake of this communion with me and Wakita. That's our prayer for all of our little babies. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for you. So before we partake of the elements, let us go now and ask the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts. I'd like to call the officers forward.